Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. I'm Dale Spangler. And this week, our guest is former pro motocross racer and legend Warren Reed. Moto America is the official sponsor of Pit Pass Moto. Moto America, home of the AMA Superbike and North America's premier motorcycle road racing series, is thrilled to announce that it will partner with Daytona International Speedway to host one of the world's most prestigious races, the Daytona 200, during the week of March 10th through the 12th, 2022, in Daytona Beach, Florida. The 80th running of the Daytona 200 will feature increased competition from more manufacturers and an international contingent of racers coming over to battle with America's best for the $175,000 in prize money that's up for grabs. In addition to the Daytona 200, the Moto America Weekend at Daytona International Speedway will be the opening round of the 2022 Mission Moto America King of the Baggers Championship, marking the first time baggers will race on the high banks of a super speedway with speeds expected to exceed 160 miles per hour, and also the first round of the Twins Cup Championship. Joining the baggers in the Twins Cup will be the ever-popular Roland Sands Super Hooligan National Championship. All three classes will run two races during the Daytona 200 weekend. Tickets are on sale now at DaytonaInternationalSpeedway.com or by calling 1-800-PIT-SHOP. This week's race recap is Anaheim 3, which is round 6 of 17, took place. And I'll tell you, another barn burner. We had our fifth winner out of uh, six races in the series so far. Jason Anderson takes it home. He qualified first on the night and just looked hot. Uh, really got challenged a little bit by Eli, Eli Tomac in the main event. But, uh, you know, he wins 8-2 and takes the whole shot in the final and looked strong all night. It was great to see him on that Kawasaki out front. Yeah, whoops, whoops, whoops. That's all I can say, man. Those whoops on that track at Anaheim 3 were absolutely just uh, taking riders down left and right. And uh, as the night wore on, the track became difficult and slippery. If you couldn't do the whoops, you were in big trouble at this race. Jason Anderson, Eli Tomac, Justin Barsha, the top three, those guys all seemed like they were rock solid. I did see Anderson struggle a few times in the whoops. Like If it wasn't for those whoops, I think they would have been a little tighter racing. But um, yeah, Anderson holds on, takes the win over Tomac. It seemed like a pretty strong statement for Anderson to challenge Tomac head-to-head like that and come out as the winner. So here we go. We've got all the guys on the new bikes for the year winning all the races. So it's been epic and it's been fun. And in a 250 class, we just kind of saw the same thing. Uh, a lot of action in the whoops, but Kristen Craig strong again, takes it home. But I thought the news on the night was Vince Freezy with his career best second place finish on that Honda. He got the whole shot in the main 
Craig challenged and passed him, but uh, he was able to hold on. So it was great to see. Uh, he wasn't affected so much by the whoops, but a lot of guys were, man. Yeah, it was crashes galore, it seemed like, in the 250 class with you know some pretty big names getting taken out. Joe Shimoda crashed in his heat race and was out for the night. In the main event, Nate Thrasher, Jalik Swall, and Hunter Lawrence all had crashes in the whoop section. And again, uh, I think it would have been a little bit of different top three, you know, had some of these racers not gone down. But as you mentioned, Dave, you know, Craig is just rock solid, ends up putting his name into the record books as only the, I believe it was the third or fourth time someone has swept all three of the Anaheim 250 Supercross main events. He now puts his name in a group of riders with the likes of Ryan Villapoto, Ivan Tedesco, and Ernesto Fonseca. So some pretty, pretty big name company there. week's industry spotlight focuses on the progressive international motorcycle shows outdoors tour as the nation's leading motorcycle tour connecting enthusiasts with a wide array of power sports brands ims outdoors recently announced the dates and locations of its 2022 tour the experienced focused events will bring back popular two-wheel and four-wheel demo programs e-bikes shopping custom and vintage bikes and music while also offering more chances for enthusiasts to engage with brands and their riding community. IMS Outdoors 2022 will span eight cities across the U.S., bringing more opportunities for attendees to engage with power sports culture. The series will revisit three markets that hosted the indoor version of the International Motorcycle Shows, Colorado, Arizona, and New York, and return to five markets that IMS Outdoors visited last year, Chicago, Pennsylvania, Atlanta, and Northern and Southern California. Tickets go on sale March 24th, and for more information, go to MotorcycleShows.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We'd like to welcome to Pit Pass Moto, former professional motocross racer, uh, a lot of us consider a legend in motocross, uh, Warren Reed. Welcome to the show, Warren. Hey, how you doing, Dave? Uh, thanks to be here. Awesome. We appreciate you taking the time. As you can imagine, I've, I'm a gentleman from your era, let's say, of motocross, so I've probably got a billion questions I could ask you. But uh, I wanted to start with first, you know, where's home base now and, and what are you currently doing? I was uh, born and raised in Southern California and uh, grew up in Orange County, but I lived uh, when I was 31. I stopped doing all my own independent uh, stuff. Uh, I was, uh, you know, racing and then I had a cabinet millwork contracting business and then I went to work for Honda 32 years ago and moved to Pennsylvania in 1990. I lived there for 17 years and then I moved to Georgia in 2007 and I've been down here ever since and this is pretty much where I'm going to stay. So looking through a lot of the 
interviews that you guys have done, I'd, I'd say we probably have a lot of connections on the road race side, surprisingly, that, that I'm a motocrosser, but you'd be surprised. As you mentioned, you grew up in Southern California, which was, you know, kind of the center of the universe for for motorcycling. And you've touched so many names in the industry and in, and in the sport by being around so many of the brands and so many of the people. I mean, what was that like for you as a young man growing up? I think the biggest part of it was that motocross was new when I was, um, you know, I, I turned 10 and 68 and, and it had only just gotten to America. All the other kinds of racing were very popular. Of course, dirt track was huge in Southern California, especially at that time. And but then, so we all knew, you know, going to Ascot, dirt tracks on Friday nights and the Saturday night TTs every so often. And of course, then when motocross happened, it exploded everywhere, along with all the dirt track races that were all over California too. A lot of people don't realize how many national champions in dirt track came out of, you know, the California area through the 50s and 60s. So Motocross was growing there. The weather made it happen. I think the Stingray bicycles really propelled motorcycle riding, especially. And then, you know, once kids saw that they had, you could get them with an engine, you know, they just, that was the iPhone of the 60s and 70s with the dirt bike, you know. So I, 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 I'm so glad I grew up then and I got to know so many people just. In, in racing because we all kind of hung and everybody did a little bit of everything early on. And it was only till about the mid seventies when people started specializing. I specifically like the mention of the Stingray bicycle. And I just think back to on any Sunday, that opening scene and uh, seeing those kids on those bikes. But I, I think riders from that era and yourself included were deeply involved with their motorcycles in developing the bike, the bikes they raced. I mean, you yourself has been a guy who's done a lot of hands-on modifying and making bikes work better. What was that like, and, and how did you develop those skills? Well, I, I'm, I, I think, and, and this is, I was really of the same mindset that so many of the hop-up, I'll call them hop-up people, performance people in California, whether they're dirt track guys or motocross guys, two-stroke, four-stroke, it doesn't matter. They were all guys, a lot of, you know, we... The younger guys watched a lot of people that fixed stuff for themselves, figured out how to make stuff faster. You know, a lot of these guys came out of the military, World War II, Korean War. There was many, many, many more people that fixed stuff in the military than there was the people that fought. So, you know, these guys all, you know, no matter what their jobs were, they, they, they could take motorcycles and figure out how to make them work, how to make them better, try this, try that. You know, they could work in a machine shop. They would do things and, you know, then so from making pipes to doing, you know, frames and suspension and, you know, designing different seats and tanks and handlebars. And it was like, you know, kind of apps are for smartphones, you know, all these people, you know, developing that, but it was grassroots. Nobody had to go to college to learn it. They just did it because they loved it. And they, and, you know, people are, are naturally inquisitive and very uh, ingenious at c coming up with new ways to do things better. And that's what all of us kids, as we came up, it just continued on. And if you think of how many, especially in California, how many farm kids from around the country served in the military and then ended up staying in California. And it was a lot of manufacturing, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And people, you know, and these guys grew up, you know, fixing tractors. You had to, you know, they, they had to figure out how to make things work. All those type of personalities just 
found motorcycles and it was so fun and you could ride so many places and so, you know, so many clubs. It really was an amazing time. And, and what I just described is why Americans came to dominate the, the worldwide racing. Motocross came to America in, in the late 70s or late 60s. By the early 80s, we'd won two of the three world championships and the motocross and trophy to nations, and, which we did for the next, what, 14 years or something. Uh, road racing, we went from, you know, no American ever won a world championship. And then all of a sudden, you know, Kenny Roberts and and Freddie Spencer and, and you know, Rainey and and uh, Lawson and Schwanson, you know, I mean, just the list just keeps going. That all grew from that American ingenuity, not college people, but just people that love doing stuff and were ingenious with, with figuring out how to, A, go faster, and there was lots of other guys to race with, and, and B, how to make stuff better. And, and everything worked along together, and it was uniquely American. It really was. And, and you can see the rest of the world followed, you know, and tried to mimic that, that ingenuity and fun. And, and they have, everybody's kind of equalized now to a certain extent. But that mentality is especially, I think, with a lot of guys that are my age, really loved. And, and it's, it's a huge part of our life. And uh, no matter what we ever did after that, that's still our connection together and, and to a sport and to a, a time and a culture. So Warren, I've I've uh, read descriptions. You know, speaking of the '70s and you know that kind of that golden age of motocross that everybody calls it. You know, I've read dis- read descriptions of how that the Trans Am and the Trans USA series back then were just huge, huge events with riders like Roger DeCoster, Heike Mikola, you know, Graham Noyce all coming to California in the off season to race. Tell us about that period from your perspective. And do you think it? You know, maybe I know the answer to this already, but you know, do you think it helped American riders elevate their race craft? being able to compete against the best riders from Europe? Absolutely. Because the, and, and two things, the, the, with motocross, there was so much local competition, of course, in California, but everywhere else in the country. And, you know, a guy be the fastest in his county, then the fastest in the state, and then he'd go ride nationals. And then if he got really good, the best riders in the world would come over for the Trans Am and the Interams every year. And they'd get to race against DeCoster and Belke and Wheel and Aki Janssen and Savinga Boers and, and Torsten Hallman. And so they got to gauge themselves against the absolute very best. And if you think about that, you know, that the fact that those went over a series of races too. So it wasn't just a one-time deal. They could see how these guys trained. They could see how they, you know, uh, how they practiced, you know, what kind of lines they took, how they, you know, interacted with their mechanics, with the engineers and all of it worked. And then, Okay, again, for America, the competition was so much. It, that's why it was such an exponential leap in, in capabilities, whether it's engineering capabilities, riding capabilities. For example, myself and my friends, we would go to Saddleback during the week during, while the Trans Am series was going on, and you'd see the Europeans out there practicing, especially DeCoster. He, he was out there practicing the most. To watch the absolute most precise rider in the history of the sport on hard packed slippery dirt take an open two stroke around dirt and like that and not be sliding out you know not uh, being able to just go so fast and he looks so smooth and we got to watch this that's you know that's like 
you know, going to Los Alamos and, you know, and watching Edward Teller develop, you know, nuclear theory and stuff like that and just be able to watch every day, every day, every day and, and realize how their brain works, how they think, how they do everything. You know, because we had year-round weather, we could go, we had all this time to go practice and practice against each other and compare our notes and, and talk about things. It was so cool. I think I saw too where at one point in your career, somewhere around 85, you raced the Ascot Flat Track National. And then, and that same year, you raced the Austrian 500 Grand Prix on an ATK. And then for, I think, Further on that year, you raced a BMW in the Baja 1000. Seems like you've raced about every facet of off-road motorcycles. So how, how did those experiences come about? Kind of almost seems like you're like the Ryan Sipes of the of the 80s. You know, you just go race all these different types of events. Yeah, I did. And um, I rode, I, I had a factory ride for all four Japanese brands and then plus the, uh, the ATK and then the BMW. But, you know, because uh, I talked about, you know, the going to watch Ascot, dirt tracks, you know, and, you know, before I ever really started racing, it was something that we did and get to see that. And then my first motocross races were at Ascot Park on Wednesday nights and night racing. When it came time to put a full-time end to my motocross uh, career, I didn't want to stop riding or racing. And I still was, you know, I felt like I was as fast as I could be competitive in any kind of racing. And I, I knew I could in dirt track and, and road race, although I didn't road race because of the super bikers events that I did. And, you know, I'd never been on pavement on a motorcycle in my life until super bikers. And I was, you know, getting on the front brake so hard going into corners that I'm riding the front wheel going into corners the first time. So I, I figured out I could I could probably be pretty, be pretty good at road race and dirt track with, you know, just 20 minutes of practice and I, I think I proved it, but uh, I did go out and I wanted to race to a track and at that and they AMA because I called it the Steve Wise rule. They allowed any rider that was an expert, a full expert in any type of professional racing could automatically get an expert, you know, racing dirt track, motocross, road race. So I, I was expert in all three. And then plus Speedway, I had a Speedway license. So I think I was the first guy that had and maybe the only, in, in at, at one time I had all four professional license on my card. And one of my biggest regrets is I don't have that AMA card anymore. But I uh, did ride the Ascot TZ. Uh, the White brothers, Dan and Tom, were both friends of, of mine since before I ever raced a motorcycle because they worked at the Yamaha shops near where I lived. And so they supported me when I went to ride dirt track. And then the first dirt track I rode in 85, was on a, a Saturday night in April, and my brother Wayne and I were, you know, we're very close, and, and he's a good mechanic. But so after the Ascot TT on Saturday night, we drove all night to Hangtown, and then got there about three hours before the gate opened, and uh, and slept in the, the van till the gate opened, and then I went in and rode the 500 National on an ATK on that the ne very next day. So you know, less than 15 hours from one a dirt track national to a motocross national. That was pretty cool. <laughs> that was pretty cool. And, and two weeks later, I rode a Grand Prix in, in Austria. I, I think that's, you know, that, that I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I win that uh, competition. So, you know, the, 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 the most varied within a short period of time. So 
I guess kind of like what Tony Stewart's done is he's traveled cross country to race two events. But um, and what people should remember about that is when you were one of the first first guys to do it on a four stroke in the 500 MX class. So that's uh, that's going way back to 1985 Hangtown when you did that. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, that bike it was very good. The ATK was uh, very good. Uh, it um, Horst Leitner, the engineer owner that, that developed it, was uh, you know the, the guy's super smart. And, um, you know, it's funny as I was remodeling his house through my, my cabinet contracting business and racing for him, you know, on the weekends and I needed the racing to support my cabinet shop until I got up to full speeds. (laughs) So it it was a a pretty good match. So when I think back, uh, you know, looking at your career, what I've read and seen and, and some of the things you've told, I'm. All of that talent kind of coalesced at one point, and uh, there was a happenstance at the Pittsburgh Supercross in 1983. And uh, I don't think you've publicly gotten full credit for this, but uh, skimming the whoops, which is something that nobody prior to that had had really tried, maybe not intentionally anyway, but you had gone out there and done it intentionally and uh, kind of developed, I think, a new skill for Supercross that's uh, that's still being used today. You know, I always knew I did it, and uh, what was funny was um, I had gotten acknowledgement of it. I, I went to watch, uh, I went to Texas to watch the Supercross. This was in the, the 2000s, I think, right? David Bailey was announcing after the races, we're out near the pits and hanging out, and David was wheeling through, and, you know, hey, you know, we started talking, and he goes, uh, he said, what do, you, what do you think about all those guys using your, your technique? And, uh, you know, I'm still kind of cocky. I said, well, which one? <laughs> so, <laughs> and he said, uh, oh, going across the top of the hoops. I go, oh, yeah. I go, that's that's pretty cool. I need credit for it, though. But, and <laughs> yeah, and he actually, he did an article in Racer X when his, he used to have a monthly column, and he wrote about myself doing it. And because uh, I, I had, that was the year, 83 was the year he won the, the Supercross title and the Grand National title. And I, I beat him in the, in the semi, that's back then you rode a heat, a semi and a main, not like now where you go right to the main. I would gap him every lap on that section and um, and on some of the other jumps. So I was I was a jumper. I'm not a jumper anymore, but I was I was a pretty good jumper back then. And, and you know, we had I think we had to be a lot more precise with jumping back then because of the jumps were peakier and the including the landing jumps. So there there was no margin for error. You couldn't your front wheel could never hit the top of the landing jump back then. Never. If it did, you're you're done. You're going to crash. There's no way around it. It's going to be a bad crash. That is one of the things that they've done with the tracks to to make them a little safer. Now, they've added so many jumps that I think now the 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 biggest uh, risk to the riders is that if they get out of rhythm, you know, whether going through the hoops, skimming across the tops, or on uh, rhythm sections, you know, with multiple jumps and multiple patterns to do it. If they get out of rhythm, it gets really ugly really fast. And I think, I feel, and I really feel strongly that the injuries that we see, so it seems like more of, I'm, you know, is because when you crash now, you're not landing on flat ground and rolling or skidding. You're hitting into the face of a bump or a jump. And you don't roll, you don't skid, you don't anything. You just stop, you know, and, and you know, organs, you know, our, our, our bones hold all of our organs in. And when all your organs, you know, keep moving and the bones stop, then, you know, it causes big problems. 
But the, the skimming across the top thing, I, I originally started doing it like a lot of people on sand, you know, sand hoops. And as long as your front wheel hits the top of the very first bump in any, any series of bumps, if your front wheel, you put it down right on top of the first one, then what happens is with a throttle on, the bike will stay level and just keep continuing level. If your front wheel hits the face of the first bump or any bump thereafter, then the energy of the front absorbs so much that all your weight and the rest of the weight of the bike come forward too, and it compresses more than normal. And then everything, then then the only place for all that energy to go is up. It can't go forward. The bump's in the way or the jump's in the way. It has to go up. And that's when you see the guys get out of rhythm. All of a sudden, they start going buck and bronco because the front wheel dropped in between them and hit the face of one of the bumps or the face of a jump. And that's when the thing launches and, you know, starts launching if you're on a, on a rhythm section or it starts bucking bronco if you're in the hoop section. And it seems like we saw a lot of that. I don't know if you're following the current state of motocross and supercross, but we in this last round at Anaheim, we saw a lot of everything you just described, Warren, where, where uh, if things get out of rhythm, it's pretty much over. And there was just a lot of carnage because they had a tough, tough set of whoops this last weekend. That's one of the things that if I was a trainer for the riders, like, uh, like a riding trainer, not, not just a you know, uh, you know, physical activity trainer, but I would have them practice getting out of rhythm, whether it's you know, the jumps or the, or the hoops. Because you know, very often, especially late into the, you know, to the, into the main, the track starts deteriorating and you start getting ruts and kicker bumps you know, as you leave a jump or going through the bumps. You know, or they you start getting down past the traction. Now you're at a harder packed dirt, and the wheel spins off, and or it spins off sideways. And um, if especially going through the hoops, if your if your wheels aren't perfectly lined up, it starts getting ugly. What I would like to see on the hoop sections is that they they vary, they they eliminate the consistent pattern. Okay, so in other words, make make them so that yeah, all of them aren't the same. They all aren't exactly parallel to the direction of the travel. They're they're at different angles to the direction of travel. You make some higher than others. Make some with a little bit steeper face than others. Make a little bit different distance between each one. Put a put a big one right in the middle that you, there's you know no way to skim across. You have to set up for it. You know, one thing it'll do is it'll the the speed that they're going by the time they get to the end because you notice they almost keep accelerating as they go through. That's the only way to keep it going. And if they're not pulling hard straight back on the bars and with a throttle on, it may actually makes the rear end stiffer and it, it'll, it'll stay level. But as soon as you have to back off a touch and then that front wheel drops, it, it starts getting ugly. And uh, it, it, when you saw the fastest guys, what did they start doing at the end? They started just doing hops, you know, Anderson and Tomac at that last race. They, they, they started kind of going, you know, instead of just, you know, blitzing across the tops. And they saw that maybe it wasn't the fastest, but it was the easiest to control. You know, like a, a quarterback, you know, what you, you eliminate the chance that an interception, right? Well, a supercross guy going through the hoops, you eliminate the chance of a huge mistake. You have to. Sometimes you have to take the risk, you know, to win and it bites you. No question. Definitely the uh, subject of many of the message boards lately is is uh, the, the quality of tracks and protecting the riders. And it's something 
in your career, we know you've seen a lot of and uh, helped develop uh, and set the uh, tone for the future. And Warren, we could honestly talk for hours. We've got so many things we could we could ask you, but unfortunately, our time is running short. So is, uh, as a closeout, um, uh, is there any way for uh, fans to uh, check in on you, whether it's Facebook or any of the social media platforms? Yeah, face, Facebook, Media, or uh, Getter. I still keep involved. I'm retired from Honda after 30 years, and uh, I'll do occasional schools, and I'll do you know, various um, you know, promotions and, and things like that, and looking forward to doing a little bit more of that type of thing in, in my retirement. And still do a little bit of cabinet work here and there. I enjoy creating. Awesome, Warren. We really appreciate you taking time to spend with us on Pit Pass Moto, man. Thanks, thanks for spending time today, man. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks again to our guests for being with us today. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review our show. We'd really appreciate it. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our latest blog and our brand new store where you can get your very own Pit Pass Moto swag. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson, producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. I'm Dave Sulecki. And I'm Dale Spangler. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.